Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. Now, PJ, do you think there's uh, any kind of correlation between uh, the quality of an episode we do and the amount of time (laughs) we spend... Uh, talking about completely unrelated topics beforehand. Oh, uh, I can't remember which episodes we've waffled a lot before we recorded <laughs> at this point. Don't we just waffle every episode? I feel like the last couple... I don't want to say we've gotten... No, disorganised is the wrong word, but life has gotten in the way. It does of that. Some of our, yeah, so we, I think the last couple have been a bit kind of up up to the wire, in, turn, in close to the wire in terms of like getting them out on time. Um, and I feel with the last couple, maybe we've been like recording in the evenings or kind of like in stolen moments and there's been less chit chat. It's been like business. We've just kind of <laughs> gone for it. Um, but we just had a nice little natter about, about our convention experiences. Yep. Yes, we did. Trading, trading war stories as it were. <laughs> we sound so bitter. <laughs> uh, yeah. I wonder if that's like, I do wonder if that's like the natural progression of of most uh independent comic creators is bitterness i think it is because these days you know it used to be i think the uk had a vibrant convention scene with conventions you could go to which didn't cost an arm and a leg for a table and where you could sell your book and and you know there might be the odd writer from one of the big two or something but for the most part it was good indie stuff and now it's all the showmasters and super comic con <laughs> and which costs you know you have to remortgage your house to get a table there's no way you're making that cost back on your stupid little book you've made and yeah well and and um i mean uh you know uh with big punch when when we still for our sins go to uh an mcm event uh, which is under new management now, uh, and um, don't think it's a controversial statement to say that they're, they're not doing a very good job. They are um, <laughs> astonishingly disorganised uh, to the point where you're like, you run, you're the company that runs a lot of like big American conventions. How how are you getting this so wrong? Like every time, it's really baffling because they know they'll make their money off the photo ops. They get the the actors from the big American shows in. They charge punters like £200 to stand next to them, not touch them, and don't even look at them, but take a photo with them. And people pay that. And that's what pays for the con. And they don't care yeah. about the comics. No, they, they really don't, actually. I mean, we... Um, God, we had a pretty torturous experience at the last uh, London 
MCM, which, you know, for any international listeners, is is essentially the biggest show mm. in the UK. They run it twice a year, once in May, once in October. And uh, sings, for ch- sings for Change in Management, um, we went through the application process to get a table, as we do, as we had done pre-convention, like twice a year, sometimes four times a year, if we were going to some of their other shows. And um, we got rejected on the grounds that... Um, Apparently, we didn't prove that we were comic creators enough, um, which I I was so salty about. Like yeah. I was, I was, I was pissed after that. You know, there were emails in that kind of like painfully polite British way, where you're like, "I'm really angry, but I'm going to be unfailingly civil about this until somebody gets embarrassed and just gives me what I want." Yeah, you, the problem is. As well, you're always going to disappoint some people. I remember the first year when Thought Bubble had to curate the mm. uh, the 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 people who applied. So you you know they basically have to try and pick and choose who was going to make for a good show. And it didn't matter what they did; they were going to be angry people because you were going to disappoint people who'd done every Thought Bubble before. But you're all, and then have some new creators as well who aren't getting the opportunity. Either way, they had so many applicants, and I do remember creators going, "Oh, I've done all the thought bubbles, and there's just no loyalty." And I'm there going, "Do you know how many of these people have done all the thought bubbles? If you just have the exact same people every time, yeah, I get that you you wanted to be at the show, you wanted to be able to sell your stuff at the show, but you know, you're not going to get in every time, unfortunately. No, and yeah, and that was the thing. I mean, we, you know, for us at least, we we felt. You know, I felt I was walking a fine line between coming across as entitled, yeah. you know, going like, hey, don't like, you know, don't you know who I am sort of thing. But but I think the thing, if they just said like, oh, you didn't quite make the cut. Yeah. Like, oh, OK, fine. But it's when they basically said, you know, when we said like, hey, why why were we rejected? We've been, you know, coming along for years. And they basically said like, uh, oh, we looked at your website. Uh, they essentially said you look like a big soulless corporation. Uh, clearly not clearly not you know and, and literally to the point where they said you don't have any photos on your website of you as people oh my god they actually advised us to add photos to our website just to show that who we were and i was like geez louise you know we essentially got counted down because we applied as quote unquote big punch studios rather than john locke struggling author kind of kind of thing um so yeah it's really really weird i bet marvel were there they're a big soulless corporation did they have photos uh, of everyone on their site uh marvel applied as stan lee so that was um. fine <laughs> the the um the first show i ever exhibited at was the 2012 uh london super comic con mm. which was the first of its kind and the big pull was that they had Scan Lee, who I think, and I think at the time it was something like his first UK appearance in maybe over a decade or something wild like that. Yeah. And I think he did go on to do another one in the UK before, before obviously he's, he sadly passed. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't in the, in the long run, it wasn't like some big exclusive thing, but. I do remember, like, the crowds that turned out for that. It was, uh, well, there, there was a trickle-down effect, I have to say, because, you know, there were thousands of people there just to see Scan Lee. And then there were about, like, eight tables selling comics. <laughs> like, you know, it was very 
bare bones and um and all these people were like bored once they'd seen scan lee so it was a good place to be debuting a book <laughs> fair enough i was very lucky it was just right right place right time i think i think my first one as an exhibitor was uh cardiff independent comic expo the very first one of those and that's a show that i miss uh sadly yeah. doesn't happen anymore but yeah because that, that just had a really nice vibe it was uh, Bunch of really good people, fun fun group, and it was close enough to town as well that people didn't have to travel far to go to it. And yeah, that that first show was really good fun. Yeah, in fact, was that the same show that was run? Because there was also wasn't there also like a Birmingham Internet Independent Comic Expo? Yes. Was it the same team? Uh, yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Always like I I think there must obviously still be. There are still some some smaller independent shows out there. There was Noxingham Con. Yep, I think that, that was still going pre-convention and a uh, pre-convention, pre-pandemic. Uh, is what I meant to say. And uh, isn't there Meanwhile Comic Con? I think that's in Coventry. I'm not familiar with that one, but yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. It's just I don't know. It's weird. And I realise like before we turned the mics on. I think you wisely said, PJ, that if we recorded a podcast which was us talking about <laughs> defunct UK Kongs, it would be far too niche and no one would enjoy it. Yeah. And then I realise I've just made us do that. We've been doing it, yeah. Yeah. Welcome I to apologize. Welcome to John and PJ moaning about the state of the UK convention scene these days. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Well, PJ, how about this for a segue? Um don't uh no, don't grumble, PJ. We've got something to smile about. Do we? Uh, yeah, you really like this story. Oh, oh yeah, I really like this story that we're looking at today. <laughs> uh, crisis times five. Which, a four-parter, yeah, which is, I, I, find, I find frustrating. A title that makes no actual sense to, to a lot of the story. I mean, yeah, it involves the fifth dimension, but Crisis, obviously trying to evoke Crisis on Infinite Earths and all of that kind of thing, and... But it should be a five-part story. I think it was supposed to be a five-part story originally. I, I seem to recall from the wizards. Yeah. Um. Well, again, again, the the mystery of the the wizard the wizard specials. Um, you know that that thing where um Howard Porter was apparently going to be illustrating, um, uh, JLA Wildcats. Yep. You know, and and then he didn't, but he did take a break from the book and like what was he doing in that time i do not know hmm. um but yeah but we just we've just come off the back of um a filler issue by mark miller which is actually quite good a a miller filler if you will uh yes a a miller light <laughs> uh if you will uh yeah yeah no that's fine <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave that there um but yeah but um for whatever reason um Morrison and Porter are now kind of back in force, really, because even even the tail end of the Ultramarine Corps storyline had um, Porter wasn't around. We had Mark Padrillo come in. Yeah. So I'd always wondered whether like Porter took a break because he was working. You know, he was he was trying to get ahead. Like maybe this script was done and he was working on Crisis Times Five, or maybe he really just needed to give his hands a break because uh, he'd been drawing so much damn superhero stuff um but either way this feels like the dream team are back together again yeah well it's it's weird because i don't think it gets talked about as much as some of the other ones but this is one of the biggest stories uh 
Morrison and Porter will tell together in the pages of JLA. It's it's one of only a couple of four parters that they do, mm. and it yeah, as you say, Pantarillo did the couple of preceding issues. Pantarillo also draws the two issues after Crisis Times Five, and there's a lot of characters for Porter to draw in this book because obviously this is the JLA JSA team up. And yeah. you get other sort of reservist JLA members showing up as well. It's a big old story. Yeah, we're kind of getting some of that um, George Perez energy here. Yes. Where it's like, uh, hey, uh, hey, we need you to draw like uh, 200 different independent superheroes, if you wouldn't mind. Um, like, even if, even if his hands weren't just like withered claws at this point. Uh, you'd need like an emotional break, I think. <laughs> yeah, I I will say though, and you do get uh, all four covers reprinted in in one go on uh, in the trade on on the first page of this story, and they are all lovely covers, some 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 brilliant work there. But none of them are as busy as as the George Perez cover would have been for this story. I mean that in a good way, of course. When I say uh, George Perez and busy, because no one could cram as many characters onto a cover as Perez and make it I, still look amazing. Yeah, and, and still keep them recognizable. Yeah. I mean, God, I mean, uh, JLA Avengers issue three. Which I think um, is still the most individual characters on one comic book cover of all time. And some of them are like, uh, like you know, inch high, you know, inch high to a gnat. You know, they're, they're, they're tiny. Um, yeah. And still wrecking. Of course, there's, there's a retro somewhere hidden I, on that cover. I genuinely think, I know we've talked about covering JLA Avengers at some point. Uh, I genuinely think we could spend a whole episode just going through that cover. <laughs> Oh god, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I appreciate the irony in presenting a JLA cask and saying uh, and saying this, but I do think I know some. I know my Avengers D-listers better than I know my JLA D-listers. Likewise, same. Yeah, yeah. And if it weren't for the fact that I own the DC Encyclopedia, I think some of those would just. Well, actually, frankly, a lot of them still do just completely pass me by. Um, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, there really is. And I think I think there have been more members of the JLA than there have been of the Avengers as well. Uh, it, it doesn't feel it on that cover because Perez was able to draw like Hank Pym on it five times, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, cheating, you might say. <laughs> uh, but of course, it, it's like, it's got that weird, it's not just like, hey, I'm going to draw like 200 characters. It's like there's weird thematic grouping yeah. to where the heroes appear like obviously all the archers are together um all the speedsters are, are together and even like way 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 in the background like um i don't want to say like also rans but there's like um there's a little group of superheroes like i don't know traveling together and they're all characters from both teams who maybe were only only ever appeared briefly or yeah. made like cameo appearances before dying yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, it's like good God, like the amount of care that went into that is insane. I think uh, when we do get to JLA Avengers, because obviously every character that appears on that cover also appears somewhere in the story within the four issues of mm. it. They, Busick and Perez, made sure they included everybody in the story. We're, we're going to have to dedicate some time to those. Those are going to be some very special episodes of the JLA cast. <laughs> oh, very much so. And I, I was actually thinking. I mean, um, obviously we've we've pretty much confirmed that the podcast is not going to end when we finish um, the Morrison run, uh, which, you know, sadly, I was looking at my spreadsheet and I'm like, oh, grief. Yeah, I can totally see the end now. Um, but I think I think um, JLA Avengers is, is, is a must. Um, 
I wonder if we should uh, try and um, do a bit of mopping up, like try and catch some of the the, the very weird and hard to come by Morrison JLA pieces. Like uh, I'm aware that there's some issues of One Million which were written by Morrison, which we should try and track down. Yeah, I think those. I think the the first Justice League stories Morrison did that uh, Chris the Mighty Murphy put us on to a few weeks ago. I also think we should probably look at the three part story Morrison did in JLA Classified with I want to say Ed McGuinness. Oh, grief with the um, Ultramarine Corps. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Which which has ties to what Morrison would go on to do in Seven Soldiers of Victory as well. Yes. Yeah, again, I've I've seen that book. I flicked through that book in in a, in a Waterstones years ago. Uh, I do not own it. I'm probably gonna have to track it down. I I also I don't think I own it. I may do I have those issues digitally? Cannot remember. I have to check. Oh god, and of course I I know Comicsology is going through a lot of changes right now. I need yeah. to. It's on my to do list. I've got to go in and work out what the hell I need to do with with our back catalogue on on Comicsology because I just. I don't know, I've been getting the emails and I'm just, oh, it's so hard to get motivated to sort it out. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, but PJ, talking about covers, um, what on earth are we looking at in uh, for on the cover for this issue? Well, this is a weird one, isn't it? Because you've got, like, uh, <laughs> a genie character in, in the bottom left of the cover, very much out of the Arabian Nights, uh, drawn in a way that, you know, th- this is supposed to represent a character that will appear in this story, but this character will not look anything like this anywhere in this story. (laughs) Um, And he's rubbing a lamp and out of the lamp are popping like evil gin versions of Wonder Woman, Superman and Jean. So sort of them, but with pointy ears, claws and and evil looking smiles and wreathed in smoke and flame. And it's, it's a lovely evocative cover that bears absolutely no resemblance to anything that's going to happen in the next four issues. Well, this this is the thing that always bugged me, PJ. The 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 um, malevolent-looking genie fellow rubbing the lamp in the foreground. I'd always wondered, like, is that meant to be genie Batman, or is that just meant to be um, evil genie figure, miscellaneous evil genie figure? Um, I have to assume it's the latter. They probably would have lent harder on it if it was meant to be an evil Batman. I, I think it's meant to be like looks or however that's pronounced uh, <laughs> a representation thereof although that is not how that character will look anywhere in this story so it's one of those weird covers that looks cool but has absolutely no relevance to anything you're about to read do you suppose is it in any way possible that porter got the brief that the next story was going to involve genies and was asked to put a cover together before he'd seen the script that's possible i mean my understanding is always that the cover's usually the last thing the artist draws for an issue isn't it but yes if, no, if you're in right, this actually. instance they needed it for some promo art or something like that and and yeah it's entirely possible hmm. but it's uh it's fun i think it, it gives a pretty good imp- it, uh the visual language of storytelling uh tells us exactly what to expect uh which is genies pj there's gonna there's gonna be a lot of genies in this story woohoo um, well, I guess if we're if we're ready to like just dive into it, um, we open with a prologue, as is so often the case, uh, called "The Wise Men 
of Badnesia. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, bad Badnesia? Yeah, something like that. I think it's one of those yeah. fictional DC countries, I believe. Yeah, I was going to... Uh, well, well, okay. Well, you. I was going to ask PJ whether you were... Uh, particularly familiar with this with this uh, country, this fictional country. I, I'm I'm not especially. I think again, I know my Marvel fictional countries better than my DC ones, but that's largely because in the mid two thousands, Marvel put out an atlas, oh, <laughs> um, right, okay. which I bought. Of course, I did, uh, but which had you know all of their countries, fictional and otherwise, in there with entries and and everything. And I I read that cover to cover. I, as far as I'm aware, DC have never done that. Have they ever done? I feel they have. Have they ever done a map of the U.S.? I think for, so for DC. Yeah, because trying to explain where Metropolis and Gotham City are. I mean, if you believe Zack Snyder, they're just across the river from each other, which is bloody stupid. Uh, are they all in New Jersey? Perhaps yeah. my Ameri- my American geography is terrible. I really have <laughs> no idea. I think they're East Coast. That's all I can think of. Yes. Yeah, I think they're East Coast, but I want to say like Gotham. In fact, is Gotham even east? Uh, is Gotham on the coast? I can't remember. Must have. It's got uh, docks. Have yet? Yeah, well, we're going to see some of them in this. In this. In not in this issue, but in this story at least. Yeah. It, it's um. It's uh. You know, in um. Nowheresville. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 somewhere. It's everywhere you need it to be. Yeah. Um. But uh. You know. Anyway, we open in Badnesia, uh. And um. A giant, uh, kind of whirling sandstorm monster is is on the rampage, uh, and is also kind of crackling with with electricity or energy, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and we've got a speech bubble coming out of a nearby building that talks about uh, five receptacles, sometimes appearing as as lamps or bottles, always a container for carrying fluid. Yeah, and in the background, as this voice continues talking, uh, we see a a red blur uh, moving uh, kind of faster than the eye can follow, uh, just whipping round and round this kind of giant sandstorm monster, uh, uh, essentially kind of disassembling it. Uh, as, as the voice says, uh, the liquid, oil, wine, ink is what binds the spirit to this universe and its master. That and its barbarous name spoken in reverse. The old books are true. The Jin walk the earth again. Yeah. And we're now inside the room with some scientists and military types stood there. There's a pair of yellow boots sort of float down from above and says, okay, so I've, I've taken out the four elemental giants. Anything else you need? And then the figure lands and says, is there magic in here? <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, I, we'll come back to this in a second. Uh because I, I have I have some thoughts, but um, the uh, I guess the scientist who's who's kind of been doing all this talking says, uh, "Yep, I think we know what brought these monsters to life. Uh, these four elemental giants. Uh, something has come from beyond our space. Something that does not belong here." And as we turn the page, we get an incredible double-page spread of Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. No, not that one. Uh, as somebody hangs a blue hat towards him and says, <laughs> the Jin are among us. And Captain Marvel just says, holy moly, first time I've ever seen anyone scared of a derby hat. Okay, PJ. Um, what on earth is going on here? Well, 
Captain Marvel has just stopped a big sand monster and they've passed him a blue hat. Okay. So, I have questions. <laughs> um, are we in any way... Is it in any way possible that this is a continuation of some scene that happened in a Captain Marvel solo book or anything weird like that? It's possible. I'm I'm honestly not sure. Um, I believe the hat is supposed to be Mr. Mixius Pitaluk's hat. Yes. Uh, but beyond that, I'm honestly not sure if this is carrying on from somewhere else or if this is just something entirely of Morrison's creation to start this issue just just let us know hey captain marvel's involved it, okay because yeah because it, it it it's very morrison and if, if this were just a random cold open it works it's great it's random the thing i find weird is um uh, this dude is talking about there being five receptacles five you know really driving home the idea that there are five things that are basically housing genies or spirits or something in them uh and captain marvel has just finished taking down four elemental giants and then he gets handed a hat yeah and my point is a hat is not a container for liquid unless you turn it upside down uh but we you and i know that that's mr um thank you thank you peter uh that's potentially his hat but my question is: There's a lot of like, there's a lot of different things going on here because those elemental giants don't come back. No, um, we see a couple of receptacles of liquid over the course of his story, but we don't see five, and uh, the hat doesn't mean anything in the long run. Your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are: This group of scientists have been studying fifth-dimensional imps. Uh, they maybe accidentally unleashed one. Maybe even Mixius put a look himself. Although, no, that would, that's contradicted by something Superman says later. So someone else. Uh, maybe Batmite. And <laughs> Captain Marvel has had to deal with it. But now he's like, oh, there's more of these? Okay. Okay. I'm about to do an adventure. So uh, you're basically saying this is like a, this is a cross-section of just uh, fifth-dimensional genie... Yes. Weirdness, basically. Yeah. Um, also, here's a question to you, PJ. On the first page, where we have this um, super manly figure who is kind of kept in the shadows and who can apparently move faster than a speeding bullet, um, are do, is it meant to be a mystery as to who this character is until you turn the page? Uh, I think it's not so much a mystery, but it's just a nice heroic reveal. Mm. And, you know, because you see the yellow boots and then you do see, like, his belt and the red outfit and a bit of his cape. So people in the know would be like, ah, I, I know who this is. This is this is your friend and mine, Captain Marvel. And then, of course, you get just a nice big heroic shot to introduce him into the book. Because Captain Marvel hasn't, as far as I'm aware, appeared yet other than, I think, his face on one of Oracle's screens in the yes. Amazo issue. Yeah, um... And it's weird, isn't it? Because I, 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 I wasn't sure whether it was meant to be like a bit of a baiting switch, and we were meant to be thinking like, "Oh, is this Superman?" Oh no, wait, it's it's um, it's Captain Marvel, who I've got a lot of time for personally. I think he's a really interesting character. Me too. Um, I will never 
entirely get on board with calling him Shazam. No, he's Captain Marvel. He's Captain Marvel. Um, yeah, I guess though. Um, I, I, do you know? Do you happen to know anything, Peter, about where where Captain Marvel was at this point in history? Like, was he getting much screen time, for lack of a better word? Uh he, I think he'd mostly get used in guest star capacity. I think he... I cannot remember if he had his own book or not at this point. But certainly he obviously got used as a major part of Kingdom Come. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was recently quite a big part of uh, JLA World Without Grown-Ups. Which we are going to we are gonna revisit. Yep, we'll, we will visit. be covering that at some point. Um I think he's just a character that writers really liked using, but that couldn't necessarily hold down his own book at this point in time. I can imagine that in the 90s in particular, it would be quite hard to make this character relevant, I think. Sadly. I say that with with, with regret. I think there are ways to do it. I think there are ways it could have been done. I just feel like... Yeah... In, you, they maybe weren't putting the right people on a Captain Marvel solo book and that you know readers at this point in time if a comics issue one did well which it usually did because people would just buy anything that had the number one on it because of the whole speculator market that was going on at the time then great but issue two would see a huge drop off mm. and I think the somewhat lesser known characters, which at this point Captain Marvel obviously was, it wouldn't really carry on beyond that. I would be curious to know if the Shazam film that came out a couple of years ago has helped sort of increase sales on Captain Marvel books. I don't know if 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 he has a book at the moment, Shazam, or not. But it's very much. No, I have to confess, I haven't seen Shazam. The movie. no, neither have I. But um. I've heard I've heard positive things about yeah. it, uh, but I I know that's that's a very kind of new fifty two adaptation of the character because yes. um, again they're not really doing the um, it's not like a dual personality kind of thing, but it's like um, it's more like big, you know. I think in the movie it's yeah. like you know turns into Captain Marvel. He's still got the mind of a child. He's a bit goofy, uh, whereas like I'd always liked the idea which I think we see kind of outlined a bit in this story, and I think why Morrison really likes Captain Marvel, is the idea that when Billy Batson becomes Captain Marvel, he is an adult because it's part of a transformation, but he's very much like it's a child's idea of what an adult should be. Yes. Which I kind of love because he's 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 like the perfect dad in a way. <laughs> like he's kind of, he's kind, he's strong, he's fair. Uh, he's 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 deliberately outdated because yeah he's he's old fashioned. I, I I think he's kind of a marvelous character. He's he's Superman through a child's eye. Yes, yeah, and 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 it's it's always been a little unusual that both Captain Marvel and Superman exist in the same universe. If I'm honest. Yeah, although of course that only happened because of Crisis. <laughs> True, and I guess it. It only really began because, of course, DC, as opposed to Marvel, in the early days at least, acquired a lot of his heroes by buying up smaller companies. Yeah, exactly. Because Captain Marvel, I, th- I think, I can't remember the name of the, comp- the company that published him in the 
40s and 50s, but he was like in, in something called Wiz Comics or something like that, mm. and was very much a Superman ripoff, and I think DC did sue. But Yeah, and although I think before that lawsuit, he was actually outperforming Superman. Yes, he was. There was a brief yeah, period, a more, yeah. More popular character. Um, I think he had Mar- uh, he had a, um, a movie serial before Superman as well, a black and white live action yeah. movie serial. Was it the big the big red cheese? Yeah, oh, yeah. I Morrison has has returned to Captain Marvel a lot. I would say, and some of the stuff that Morrison did in Superman Beyond, which was mm. uh, the two parter that appeared in the middle of Final Crisis, and is arguably better than Final Crisis, uh, which features an alternate universe Captain Marvel who is very true to the original concept of the character. And he's just marvellous. Like, absolutely. Mm. I, I just I, I just drink that comic. It's so good. It's tremendous. I really like... Uh, I think it was around... Around the same time as Infinite Crisis, uh, there was a miniseries, Superman Shazam First Thunder, which detailed the first meetings between Superman and Captain Marvel, written by Judd Winnick and illustrated by um, Joshua Middleton, I want to say. Oh, good, good, cool, wow. That is a really, really good series that I think sort of gets to the heart of both characters very effectively. I think it was a four or five issue series, and um, yeah, I highly recommend that. If you enjoy Captain Marvel and uh, the way Morrison writes the interactions between Captain Marvel and Superman over this four-parter, which is brilliant then that is a series worth checking out. I came at Captain Marvel all wrong. The first encounter I ever had with him was Kingdom Come. Same same here. Same here. <laughs> Absolutely. And God, like, what a... I mean, flipping heck. I mean, dark, dark as hell, but the the confrontation in that between Superman and, 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 and uh, Captain Marvel is just uh, incredible. Yeah, I think for me, it went that. Then DC versus Marvel was the next thing I read that he <laughs> same, was in. Yeah. <laughs> It's exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> Where we have, um, uh, yeah, we have uh, Thor in his his glorious nineties costume fighting Captain Marvel. Yeah, and um, the the lightning bolt gets intercepted by Mjolnir, yeah. and we get Shazak instead of Shazam, <laughs> if I recall. Yeah, yeah. There's something so kind of I, you know, we we particularly nowadays, I think particularly post, say, um, Marvel's ultimate line, we really kind of go out of our way to make superhero powers semi-realistic. Yeah. Um, and a thing I love so much about the Captain Marvel mythology is that it's magic, that's why. Yes. You know, there's something so pure about you say a magic word and you become a hero. It's It's incredible. Yeah. It's brilliant. I love it. It's Captain Marvel is the ultimate wish fulfillment, isn't it? You say a magic word, you become Superman. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And <laughs> and you can kind of see why it was popular with kids yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, at the time, it's it's very empowering. Yeah. Um, and oh God, at the end of um Flex uh Flex Mentalo or Mentalo, however it's pronounced, um, which is Morrison's kind of semi autobiographical postmodern um superhero weirdness thing, which is very good. Um. There is a there is a plot point about finding a magic word which will I don't know uh, allow you to transcend certain things, mm-hmm. um, which is a direct reference to this. So I think Morrison deeply, deeply, deeply loves Captain Marvel. Yeah, and it it's going to show through this story. Although 
I think I'm right in saying this is the last we will see of Captain Marvel in this issue. <laughs> but, yes. Uh, because now we get the the title, which is just Crisis Times 5 Part 1. And then mm-hmm. the credits, Grant Morrison writer, Howard Porter Penciler, John Del Inca, Ken Lopez Letterer, Pat Garrahy Colorist, Digital Comedian, Seps, Tony Bedard, Assistant Editor, Dan Raspler, Editor. And then we get the roll call, zzz, plural, <laughs> because you have JLA, Superman, Flash, Zariel, Plastic Man, Green Lantern, Huntress, guest starring Captain Marvel, and then JSA, Sentinel, Flash, Wildcat, Hippolyta, Spectre, and introducing a guy with a question mark. Uh, not the question. No. Decidedly no. not. Because um, this story as well is sort of the springboard that would relaunch the ongoing monthly JSA title as well. Well, yes, I was going to ask about that because was it, um, was that, was Jeff Johns on that series? I can't oh, remember I if he launched it, but he was definitely one of the writers on that book. I think it was Jeff Johns was on the book when they finally sorted out Hawkman. Yeah. <laughs> Will they ever sort out Hawkman? I do wonder. <laughs> But I know Captain Marvel would go on to become... I know he's not always a team player, but if there's a team he's associated with, it's generally the JSA. Yeah. Um, but I guess at this point, obviously there was no JSA, but he's not listed as being among their number. No, no, he's he's not on either team in this story. It's weird how this story is in JLA. It includes the JSA, though it doesn't list them as guest stars. They're more co-stars for this story. And Captain Marvel is the guest star. Hmm. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? And 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 yeah, and I guess I guess I don't really know what the current reboots and reimaginings have done to the continuity, but at least for the time in which I was actively following the DC universe, I was like, oh yeah, the JSA are a thing in yeah. present day. Yeah. And I guess it it does all kind of start here, really. Yes. Yeah. This was this was their reintroduction to the world as the Justice Society, and what mm. led to them reforming the team. Isn't there a stand? Isn't there a crossover between the two teams? It must have come a little later, once the JSA were re-established, which is where Despero and Johnny Sorrow are the villains. And that rings uh, a bell, yeah. I think Carlos Pacheco, if I'm, I'm probably horribly mispronouncing his surname, there is the artist on it. I don't know who the writer is. Oh yeah, wasn't I want to say that was a whole separate mini series, like JLA JSA something. There were a few, mm. I think, as well. There's a I think there's JLA, JSA, The Spectre War as well, which was a prestige format mini series, I think. Uh, yeah, so they they crossed over a few times in the late 90s and early 2000s. Complete sidebar, but I was just going to say, of a character that I know nothing about, but I think it looks so cool, it's Johnny Sorrow. I can't even remember who Johnny Sorrow is at the moment. <laughs> uh, oh, my God, PJ. I mean, uh, a man in a red suit who is invisible, has no face or skin or whatever, uh, has wears gloves, and then has a floating mouthless mask, like just but no but no head behind it. I've just googled him. I remember that guy. Yeah, that's a really fun, striking look. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um uh, but yeah, but yeah, PJ. Um, um, you know, I know we have a lot of talk about the JSA. I think we're about to see a little more of them. He yeah. said. Well, if we turn the page and we get my personal favourite member of the JSA, because it's Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash, trying to catch up with Wally West, the Modern Age Flash. Yeah, and of course, um, I guess in like Jay was, you know, 
pretty much a recurring character in Flash's life at the moment, I'd say. Yeah, he he certainly had a lot of uh, a lot of appearances in the ongoing Flash book. Um, I've got a few trades of it from around this era, and I think Jay is in every single one. So, yeah, and I think in my head I got kind of confused, and I assumed that Jay was the custodian of um, Impulse. No, that's but, Max but, but, Mercury. But it's Max Mercury, isn't it? Yeah. Yet another elderly speedster. Yeah, Max Mercury was the Zen master of speed. <laughs> Good God. It's, like, it's like, you know, you can't throw a rock and you'll just hit a flash in this town. Well, it's ridiculous. I think Max Mercury, I think, was another character that DC acquired. I think he was another mm. Golden Age speedster, but from a different company. So then after Crisis, that's when DC folded him into their continuity. But that's why he, I don't think, ever was a member of the JSA or anything like that. No, because you got um, Johnny Quick or yep. Jesse Quick. You know, still that's a different lineage again, isn't it? Both of them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Quicks, if you will. Um, but yeah, but we've got uh, we've got Jay uh, wearing his incredibly comfy sweater, uh, and uh, and Wally just on a, on a rooftop. Um, can, and can uh, we just talk about how good a Jay Garrick Howard Porter draws? It's really good. It's really good. Um, and yeah, just in general, like I think this is the story, perhaps more than anything, to me at least, that signals a transformation in Porter's artwork. Mm. Like it's really subtle, but like if you look at the characters here compared to, say, New World Order, it could almost be a different artist. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's really, really different style. I think everyone got a bit like um, chunkier, like a bit more like action figures. Yes. Yeah, I think in this one certainly Wally is. He looks more like a runner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's nice to see that ridiculous helmet, which um, is is so stupid and yet so beautiful at the same time. Oh, I love it. I love it. And Jay sort of talks about trying to catch up with Wally, but struggling because there are so many after images because the light is still catching up, which is a, a lovely little Morrison moment. But you do see yeah. strobed background images of both Jay and Wally in the background across all the different buildings and things in the city. Yeah, I've really, I, I do really like, it, it pops up a lot, you know, with the Flash family and everything, but I do really like the idea that Jay just can't keep up with Barry and Wally. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, they're just, they, they're more in tune with the Speed Force. I mean, it, was it, um, the Speed Force as a concept was introduced with Barry, was it not? And then kind of like retconned in to be kind of like the source of every Flash's power? Now, I can't remember if it was actually during the Barry Allen days or... Something in my brain is saying that it was actually Mark Wade who brought in the idea of the Speed Force. Oh, interesting. And it was Wally West who first connected to it. And that, well, that's why Wally en ended up, certainly in how DC continuity used to be, <laughs> faster than Barry ever was. I don't think yes. Barry ever really got faster than Jay had been, particularly. Which is very much not the case since Barry's resurrection. I think, oh, God, I think no. to, the, to the point where Wally's been essentially sidelined for a very long time now. Yeah, I think from what I gather, Wally is the Flash again and wears a Flash costume, like the full red getup, but he's not the main Flash, you know. Barry is the main Flash and Wally gets to be the Flash in, like, Teen Titans or something. <laughs> There's a lot of Flashes. It's, it's very yeah. hard to keep track of. Um... 
but yeah, but speak, you know, and in terms of like it being hard to keep track of Wally, God, segueing like a pro today. Um, uh, you know, Jay, um, Jay points out that, you know, he's pretty sure that Wally could leave him scanning. And Wally says, I can leave photons scanning. I wouldn't sweat it. And again, nice little banter between the two of them. Um, because, yeah, Wally is undoubtedly more powerful than Jay, but he's like, hey, you you did it first. You you originated the Flash, so I have an immense amount of respect for you, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. And um, it, they're looking across the road at a building, and it's going all wibbly. That's the only <laughs> way I can really describe it. The building's gone all wibbly. It's gone super wibbly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, apparently uh, Jay, you know, being having super speed and insomnia has just been like running around the town a lot and he's like hey i keep finding weird stuff like this and wally's like uh yeah i mean um well i guess we better better find a teleporter and uh hook up with the jla essentially yeah he says you you, you did say you wanted to meet the new hour man so now's your chance because of course if if uh eagle-eyed uh readers have been paying attention our man did pop up at the end of the ultramarine corps uh, where he said uh, he must have arrived a few days into the past direction because he expected them to be at war with the fifth dimension. Uh, so, hey, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And we then get a, a satellite image of, of the building going wibbly and Oracle doing a voiceover on it saying, okay, so this is happening in Keystone City. It looks like this is the attack our man predicted from the fifth dimensions. It looks like a lot of Mr. McSeas Peter looks attacks on metropolis um i'll keep my eye out but superman all you you've dealt with this kind of stuff before so you're the expert yeah and uh we see uh the jla kind of meeting room uh wait is there a better word for it than meeting room am i being an idiot conference room it's not the hall of justice is it, oh, it might, that... yeah it's the hall of justice <laughs> yeah but we have uh, superman chairing a meeting um uh, with uh, and in attendance are Plastic Man, Green Lantern, Our Man, and Huntress, which is nice. And even even Plastic Man gets his symbol on a chair, which, which is, is nice. Just his belt, but you know. Um, but yeah, so basic basically, um, they're in a, the JLA is in a very rare situation where they know exactly what's about to happen because of Our Man from the future. Um, yeah, they're basically they're about to uh, be attacked by the fifth dimension, so they have a bit of time to prepare. Uh, but as Superman points out, um, Mr. Uh, Mixiplik, Mix thank you, Peter, um, isn't uh, due for another six weeks. So, um, yeah, you know, I guess uh, don't have to worry about him. I love the idea nice. that at this point in time, Superman knew exactly when he was going to show up. It's every 90 days, like clockwork. <laughs> I know when I last banished him, so I know when he's coming again. He's, he's probably just got it marked on his calendar, like in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. You know. But he makes a point of saying that uh, Mr. Mixiplik uh, is <laughs> is um, is is mischievous. But if they had some, if they were dealing with 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 a being with his powers who was overtly malevolent, then they they'd be kind of screwed, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But PJ, we're still in the prologue. Well, weirdly, that was chapter one. Chapter one, Mile High Graffiti, and now we get Prologue 2, JJ's Big Secret. So we're hopping all over the place. Yeah, so we've had a prologue, now a chapter, now we're back to a prologue. So, yeah, pay attention, everybody. Yeah, and we go to the Infantino Bank and Trust, which is a nice little nice little nod, uh, where 
some guy is saying to a family, oh yeah, we can keep all your valuables really safe inside our vault. Look, look, it's a big vault. It's all lead lined and the door weighs 14 tons and we've got all this security stuff. Let's open the door. Hey, there's a kid in here. Uh, a foul-mouthed kid who who talks in uh, in uh, keyboard punching. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we, we are introduced to a kid who is uh, playing a Game Boy uh, sitting on a stack of uh, a stack of money and eating biscuits. Yep, he's got in, a in box of box with a candy bars. There are some cans of presumably cola or other soft beverages. And uh, they say, "How did you get in here?" And he says, "I'm hiding out from Superman's X-ray vision. I can explain everything, officer." And um, j- just in case you were starting to understand what the hell was going on, uh, we cut to the moon and. Um, it's for Watchtower, and uh, Wally's giving Jay uh, the tour, uh, and um, he's uh, he's impressed by it. He's like, "Wow, uh, some place you got here." Yeah, and I like this little detail as well that Flash says uh, Green Lantern Superman built it, but it was designed by John Stewart. <laughs> that guy, John Stewart, <laughs> one time Green Lantern, one time Dark Star, currently not a superhero, I believe. Can we assume that Wally doesn't know? That John Stewart is the identity of of Green Lantern. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. I know there's a point where John Stewart doesn't have a secret identity as as when he was Green Lantern, but I don't know if that is right from the start because he still wore a mask for a while. Or yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess Wally knows everybody, so we have to assume that he probably knows who's yeah. who. Yeah. Um, but we have um, um, the meeting of the original Flash and the Our Man of the 853rd century, which is a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, and Jay says, well, the original was Rex Tyler and Rex was a good friend, so pleased to meet you. And then Our Man is a bit standoffish and says, basically, my, my software replicates Tyler family DNA. I'm technically his direct descendant, but we've got a crisis forming. I'm just going to skip forward 10 minutes and you're going to realise that your Justice Society of America signal device is fully operational. Oracle's about to call and then Oracle calls. And uh, as Wally, Wally kind of apologises for our man in advance by saying, look, if he if he acts like a robot, it's because he is a robot, um, <laughs> which is which is nice. Um, I've always, I like, ever since I, well, frankly, the only place I've seen him has been in the pages of JLA, <laughs> but I always liked this hour man. I liked the way he looked. Yeah. Um, although I guess we're, we're missing out on the glorious uh, OG hour man's bizarre hood mask. Thing, yes. <laughs> which has never been replicated again for some bizarre reason. Yeah. That is a shame. The weirdest looking mask you will ever see. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Oracle calls in to say um, a load of people saw pink lightning strike uh, in downtown Keystone City. Twice. Hmm. And uh, Jay says to himself quietly, hmm, pink lightning, question mark. Yeah, and, th- and then we cut to a little bit later on after Jay has been explaining, you know, I, I took the... Uh, Johnny Thunder's pen from the rest home and was signing some autographs, which is something we now know happened in an issue of The Flash. Uh, yes, indeed. Just explaining who Johnny Thunder was and what he could do. And then we get... I, and this is like a, a small detail, which I think is very easily overlooked. Um, 
is that Plastic Man knows Johnny Thunderbolt because it wasn't technically Plastic Man in the JSA. Uh, I can't. I honestly can't remember. <laughs> well, here's a weird thing. Like, there's I unless I'm very, very, very much mistaken. Obviously, Plastic Man is quite an old character. Yes. I I, I mean, both in terms of you know his appearances in in published comics and probably in continuity because maybe his aging has been slowed. Um, but yeah, like he talks to several members of JSA in his upcoming story. You know, as if he was there alongside him, and it's kind of um. It's kind of wild that no one ever goes, oh yeah, Plastic Man, you're at, we should all be giving you immense amounts of respect because you you were one of the JSA. Yeah. <laughs> there is a lovely exchange uh, between him and Wildcat later on that I thoroughly enjoy. <laughs> I guess we have to assume that everyone ignores the fact that Plastic Man is like a kind of veteran World War II hero because he's just so damn annoying. Yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, so they're, they're, again, just tying into this this weird situation where the JLA, for once in their lives, actually have time to plan because they know exactly what's coming up. Yeah, and Jay explains the powers of the Thunderbolt and Flash works out, well, that means the Thunderbolt isn't a genie. It was actually an imp from the fifth dimension like Mr. Mixius Pitaluk. I bet Batman worked this out, didn't he? And Huntress says, five minutes flat. I refuse to even say mix whatever <laughs> i'm i'm with huntress on this one <laughs> i love that there's this element of in that's happened for a few stories in a row now where huntress is like why am i here why is this stuff <laughs> happening what i i yeah i have sympathy for a character who's just like i cannot believe my life has gotten this stupid you know <laughs> yeah give me a bank robber for crying out loud <laughs> And Superman says, "Okay, so that's connected a few of the strands, but how could it? How could a thunderbolt provoke a war?" And then Jay says, "Look, obviously, I know some people who have worked with the thunderbolt. He trusts us, so if he's at large and out of Johnny's control, let me call in the JSA." Oh, look, our man was right. My signal device is still working. And so we cut to Gotham City, which again is one of those fascinatingly weird little quirks of DC mythology that um, the original Green Lantern lives in Gotham. Yep. Yeah. And he... uh, I always get their names confused, isn't it? It's Jay Garrick and Alan... Oh, you're so close. Scott? Yes, there we go. Scott? Alan Scott. Alan Scott, yeah. And, um, yeah, he is... um, He has an unexpected visitor. It's uh, Wildcat. Yeah, he says he was in town catching up with Catwoman, and now the alarm's gone off, and and Alan Scott points out, well, you're old enough to be her great-grandfather, and now that my body's aging normally again, so am I. Yeah, and, oh, oh, Ted... Grant. Grant. Alan Scott, Ted Grant, and Jay Garrick. I should know that. Um, Was there, like, a kind of... Wasn't there some interaction where... Green Lantern kind of had to stop call- calling himself Green Lantern because the Green Lantern Corps essentially sent him a cease and desist letter. Yes. So <laughs> that's why in this comic he's called Sentinel. But interesting quirk, the Sentinel costume was different to his Green Lantern costume. Same colours, but slightly different shape to it. It had just like a green burst on the chest rather than the actual Green Lantern. So the fact that He's still calling himself Sentinel, but has gone back to his original Green Lantern outfit here. Uh, 
he's taken up the name again soon. I think by the start of JSA, the actual comic, he's he's back to calling himself Green Lantern, and Kyle's basically said, "Damn right, you're Green Lantern." And I understand at least that the retconning thing is that the the source of Alan's power it 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 wasn't they didn't they tie it into the green lantern mythology in some way like it was it was like an experiment it came from like an experimental green lantern prototype or something like that yes because i think i I think originally it's he made the ring and the lantern out of a meteorite didn't he Mm -hmm. uh but then i think it was sort of said that this was some kind of experimental metal that the the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps were experimenting with that they lost and or something along those lines anyway. And he does have an absolutely glorious kind of 1930s costume. I love so. it. I love his costume so much. Just colours that should not work together and <laughs> it's just... He, much like uh, Jay, uh, a man who appreciates a comfy sweater. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Red sweater it, with a yellow disc on it with the green lantern on it and then his green trousers and his purple cape. It's brilliant. And of course, at, at this point, he's not wearing a ring. No. It's like, it's like, it's like the, the, the green flames, which are distinctly f- like flames rather than just energy projections, are kind of like just parts of him or yeah, inside him. His energy is different to Kyle's and... He doesn't need the ring anymore, though again, I think that will change when they relaunch the JSA book. His powers go back to being uh, wielding the ring. And uh, pop quiz, PJ, what is the one weakness of the green flame? Well, his ring, it was wood, so presumably it's yep. still that. Yeah, I have to assume, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, Alan is, uh, I guess, for kind of like a slight curmudgeon of the group. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he is generally against the idea of there being a JSA reunion. He thinks Jay is just trying to get them all to have a meet-up again. Uh, but um, he does activate the green flame, which uh, starts to just kind of make his costume manifest all over, all over him. Yes, yeah. He also does mention that uh, Johnny Thunder has Alzheimer's now, and last time he visited, he thought he was Betty Grable. So, <laughs> you know, that's a... Sh- Johnny Thunder unfortunately did not have his age slowed like some members of the JSA. Yeah, uh, Jay has the, and this is the wonderful editorial license, Jay has the Speed Force, uh, Alan has the Green Flame, I suppose. Yeah. Although he's aging normally again, whatever whatever happened there. <laughs> yes, yes, but and they're of, going to the moon. And of course, um, this is probably common knowledge to everyone involved, but... Um, his two children are Jade and Obsidian. Yes. And didn't Jade and Kyle date for a while? Yes, they did. And I think at this point, in fact, she is a Green Lantern now. Yeah, because she's like a kind of biological lantern, isn't well, she? She she's was, kind of... but then she lost her powers, but then Kyle gave her a ring. <laughs> okay. Yeah, hard to, hard to keep track of, but um, again, legacy heroes. There's a lot of just green fire <laughs> in the family, shall we say. Um, but yeah, the gang's all getting back together again, really. And uh, just because we're seeing the various players, um, we cut once again to somewhere completely different. It's the Shining City, PJ. I do like a Shining City. 
which is another Neil Gaiman reference. Yes, it is. Yes. Mm. Again, like I kind of just like casually. No, it's not even like a retcon. It, and I guess I don't really know what went down in the Paradise Lost storyline. Like if it was referred to as the Shining City there. I can't remember. But, but yeah, but the the angels in uh, Sandman uh, inhabit the Shining City. So. So yeah, I guess that's just where angels live in the DC universe now. Yeah, and we've got a couple of angels, one of them is Ariel, looking out of a big archway where they can see that the spectre has been entombed within, well, the walls of the material universe is what they're saying. It just looks like he's stuck in a big rock. Yeah, um, kind of um, incredibly bizarre imagery, which is which is wonderful. Um, and... Um, it's always weird seeing the Spectre without his cape because you are reminded that he is he is a mostly naked man wearing kind of like green speedos <laughs> yeah. and boots and gloves. Um, but yeah, but basically something insanely powerful has been able to imprison the Spirit of Wrath, which the, the Spectre is basically like one of the most powerful beings in the DC universe. Um, so yeah, so this is meant to this is meant to worry you. Yeah, but I also like the the way they talk about the spectre, where the angels like we serve God's love. This is God's wrath. This monstrosity appalls me. Sauriel actually says, and his his friend Gorgonel says, "Well, yeah, but the presence has many faces. The wrath is no less essential to the health of the universe than its benevolent aspect." And yeah, this is a big deal, though. But we also get the impression that heaven, which has been a pretty uh, kind of remote presence in the series so far since Zariel was introduced um basically they don't like getting involved massively so they're like hey Zariel so uh you're kind of like our representative in the material world so um yeah you could handle this and uh to which Zariel was like okay so you're asking me to rescue the wrath of god and challenge a force from outside creation of course you're asking me Poor Zariel. <laughs> Poor Zariel. Um, again, I've always liked Zariel. He, he seems like a really nice guy. And yeah. I don't know, you always get the impression that he's got more going on than he really kind of lets anybody know, really. He, he comes across as quite kind of easygoing, but he has other, other responsibilities. But we cut away from The Shining City. It's a chapter two now, Bad Luck Billy Mac, and we're in Chicago where some guy who just looks really down on his luck is sat in an office, and he looks miserable. Uh, yes, uh, there's water dripping, dripping off his hair, and uh, he's being mocked, basically, by um, uh, a big robo-man. Yeah. Or, or maybe a man in a suit, perhaps? I um, have no idea if this is supposed to be an established character or if this is an original Morrison creation, but I, I love the look. I love his two henchmen. Yep. I don't know I don't know who the hell they are. They're only background characters, but I like the level of care that went into designing them. Yeah. Um they're very 90s and wonderful. Um and yeah, so the weird thing is is that according to uh this uh criminal low-life robot who's who's mocking this guy, um this is the guy who founded the Justice League. What? That's weird, isn't it? That's very um, weird. Only apparently he got lost in time, and when he came back, nobody remembered who he was, and all the rookies who ran around with him have become the world's greatest superheroes. Uh, yeah, hello everyone. This is Triumph. 
Who is a character I don't have that much familiarity with. I think I've only read one story from before this that Triumph was in, and he was very much just a background supporting character. Might have been Zero Hour. Yeah, I don't... I confess, most of what I know about Triumph comes from this story. Um, I do know that when we were doing the Wizard specials last, last episode, they commented on the the new official well sorry the new official timeline for the jla as of 1997 it's probably all been changed since then where there were like three attempts to like found the league it's very messy yeah and triumphs was kind of like the second attempt so i don't know where that original triumph story came from well i can Uh, tell you he is nowhere in jla year one no, I guess he'd already been erased from history at that point. Yeah. Um, but I think at this point he was running around with. Um, oh, was it? I get confused. He he was in one of like the the off-brand JLA titles around shortly before this. I don't know if it was Extreme Justice. Oh or- yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to say it was maybe Extreme Justice, where it was kind of like, wasn't he running around with like Maxima? I, and, I can't remember. And Booster Gold, but wearing his battle suit. <laughs> maybe I don't know. It was it, it was very nineties and weird, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's a brief reference to that when this guy says, "Even the comeback fails. Who cares when the JLA he joined gets disbanded?" So he was on there with the also rounds. You know, you have the atoms and yeah. <laughs> Your new, your new clones and, and the rest. Yeah, um, I am reminded of um, was it JLA Secret Files and Origins one where we get that lovely little scene where the League are going, "Hey, should we feel bad that we kind of kicked everyone out?" And yeah. Batman just grins. <laughs> Which, yeah, Batman blessing was not thinking of Triumph in that moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but basically, uh, uh, Triumph uh, is a perpetual loser. Uh, or the, the unluckiest man in the world. Um, he got lost in time. He's lost his powers. Uh, nobody remembers who he is. He's a complete nobody. And apparently he's so down on his luck that he's having to sell cast-off treasures from the JLA trophy room just to pay rent, basically. Yeah, he it looks like he nicked stuff from the satellite before he left, and he's just trying to sell them. And you do get... You can see one of the Ray's helmets, uh, some kind of flute thing, a gun <laughs> with a lightning bolt on it, and a blue pen. And a blue pen. And and all this time, all this time, while he's being mocked, there's a voice in his head who is talking to him, and no one else can hear it, apparently. And he keeps saying that um, you can let me out any time you say the words I taught you. You can change all of this. You're not bad. You're not mad, Billy Mac. I'm not just a voice in your head. Yeah, it mm. says I'm your last hope of staying alive. As the robot man basically says, this is all garbage. Look at this luminous ink. And Billy's basically look. It, maybe it belonged to a president. Maybe the Rainbow Raider. I don't know. I just want money. Give me some money for this stuff. Look, that's a universal translator. Yeah, to which the robot says he's got a universal translator just like it in his toilet bowl. Um, he says he'll give it, he'll give him five bucks for all of this. Um, he, look, he'll buy the weapon, basically. Um, but uh, sadly, that's not the end of it. 
uh, because um, I think they've decided to have a bit of fun with Triumph, basically, just because he's so pathetic. And they hate heroes, even even failed ones. Yeah, so the henchmen just start basically beating him up and they've got him by the hair. They're pointing this big sci-fi gun at him. And yeah, <laughs> Billy's had enough. So he finally says it. He says the name backwards. And he says, I, he says, I tried. I just wanted my rent, but it's in the pen, you moron. And then he says, so cool. And you see the pen in the robot's hand, glowing blue, suddenly just kind of like crackle with lightning as you hear a tiny click. And as we cut to the exterior of the building, there's a massive explosion and blue lightning just erupts out of the building. Um, as... Uh, as as yeah, um, we see all the um, the henchmen just reduced to bleached white skeletons, basically, <laughs> and someone's talking to uh, to Triumph. Yeah, and Triumph says, "Are you something Neron said?" And the thing says, "Neron? No, I never heard of him. Too many vowels. I'm Lux. L- Lux. L K L K Z. Lux." Um, which I guess, if you say it backwards, is Zukul. Zukul. So cool. Zukul. So cool. Um, uh, but because um, Triumph uh, is is scared that, that this this being has come from Neron, does that mean he was in any way tied up in the whole shebang where a bunch of people got new powers from from Neron? Quite was that, possibly. What, what event was that? Uh, that was the one I can't remember from. <laughs> <laughs> before final night i think sure sure um but we don't get a close-up of this thing other than it's it's made of blue light appears to be seething with energy and uh it basically says your wish is my command billy mac or perhaps why don't we start calling you triumph again Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. and then it turns out i was wrong because we're about to meet captain marvel again <laughs> it's, it's all right, PJ. It was a lot happens in this issue. It's hard to keep track of because we see uh, Captain Marvel arrive at the Rock of Eternity, and basically, look, a lot of weird stuffs going on. So he needs the help of his old wizard friend Shazam. Going to say this is a complete sidebar, but uh, in well, God, it's not even the current continuity. God, this is a nightmare. In <laughs> in the context of. Grant Morrison's Multiversity, mm. which came out in the last decade. That's where you got this idea that the DC universe is made up of 52 different universes. Yeah. And you can buy, or it came with a book, a map of the DC multiverse, which is kind of a wonderfully weird little thing um, because it shows you where the speed force is okay. and where the source wall is. And it's a really nice it's a really nice thing because it shows you where Wonderworld is. <laughs> you know, so Morrison c- clearly carrying a torch for Wonderworld. I don't but think it's gonna a... come back again and what it was why you bring yeah. it up, whatever. Um <laughs> But um the weird thing is, is that the rock of eternity in that DC cosmic mythology exists outside all the universes. To which I ask you, PJ, how does that work when you have multiple alternate universe Captain Marvels? Maybe, Question mark. maybe 
Shazam just makes sure that none of the Captain Marvels ever arrive at the same time. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, a timeshare. Like basically. if one of the Captain Marvels is coming, he says, oh, uh, yeah, you've got to go. Really sorry, but I've got an appointment that I cannot be late for. So can you just leave? No, take the back door, please. Uh... <laughs> Billy too. Oh, no, sorry. I mean, Billy, good to see you. <laughs> what? Oh, never mind. Um, but but yeah, PJ, um, Captain Marvel, uh, he's come back to his uh, his Fortress of Solitude, um, and uh, yeah, he needs to report back in with um, with the wizard Shazam, basically. Yeah, and Shazam says to him that war's brewing in the fifth dimension, it threatens to shatter the cosmos, four great supermen are going to clash on Earth as the jinn war in heaven. Uh, holy moly, says Captain Marvel. <laughs> and then Shazam says, you must not go alone, but in the end, you alone must remember the wisdom of Solomon, for all else will fail. <laughs> um, and Captain Marvel says, thanks for the tip. <laughs> now, PJ, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but um, four great supermen. I can think of two of those are, or maybe three. I'm not sure. Who do you think those four are? Or would that be spoilerific? Uh, I I can't remember either. I'm honestly... Yeah, I'm not sure. Superman. Okay, well, he's a Superman. Man. Men. I think, yeah, Superman and Captain Marvel could maybe be counted among that. Maybe we should, maybe we should just bear that in mind and, and give it some thought as we go ahead. Yeah, I think so too. Cool. Um, so once again, uh, there's barely any time to get comfortable before we, we turn the page and we're back on the moon. And um, yeah, we we have, the, I guess, the all that constitutes for JSA at the moment, which is uh, Jay Garrick, Alan Scott and Ted Grant, um, basically just getting the tour from Wally and Kyle, just wandering around the watchtower. Yeah, and Jay points out, hey, they still have the Crimson Avenger cloak up here. Wow, we kept that for years, which I think got <laughs> referred to in the issue of Aztec, where Aztec joined the JLA. Yes, indeed. Was, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it was kind of introduced around this time. I think maybe a Morrison Miller co 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 author idea, basically. Yeah, but they use it for the initiation ceremonies, and Kyle does get a bit. Oh my god! I mean, I know, I know, Alan and Jay, but this is the Justice Society. Oh my god! <laughs> and um, they're going through like um, kind of like the 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 trophy trophy room kind of kind of also a bit like a museum display and uh they come up against like waxworks of the original jsa uh which uh, ted grant says oh great now i know where my spare costume went thanks a million fellas i look like some kind of pervert <laughs> which is kind of nice <laughs> and they also point out that um uh doc midnight um doesn't have that physique uh, to which Wally apologizes and said uh yeah we had to kind of reuse an old superman figure um the last one got lost when the satellite was destroyed sorry <laughs> yeah and wildcat says how come everyone else looks noble and i look creepy um yeah so it's just it's just lots of lovely banter basically um and we also see uh, in the in the trophy cabinet um hawkman uh doctor fate uh wonder woman our man, and obviously Doc Midnight, who is actually a repurposed Superman. Yes. 
Uh, but our man has no patience for this nonsense and basically says, uh, excuse me, the next seven minutes is filled with irrelevant conversation. I'd like to move things along. And yeah, we just suddenly smash cut basically to Superman, Zariel and Huntress stood there as Zariel is finishing telling a story saying, this isn't a coincidence. The Spectre would be one of this reality's first lines of defense in an attack from higher beings. We should take immediate steps to free him while we have some time. And the JSA are rightfully confused going, wait a second. <laughs> Uh, so what the hell just happened? And Aramek says, I moved everyone forward in time, seven minutes. And Jay says, you could do with learning some 21st century manners, son. We like our irrelevant conversations. <laughs> yeah, and Zauriel just carries on then saying he needs help from someone who has experience with the non-material realms. Superman asks our man if he can tell him anything else, but our man says, well, there's there's weird distortions surrounding the coming events energies from beyond time are affecting my vision I, I can't really see what's happening very convenient but um you know i would also be a bit like why are you even here like seriously well <laughs> no. you know it, it is convenient but when you think isn't time is the fourth dimension and then the fifth dimension is imps so they are more powerful than time I suppose, PJ, but we're all we're all getting paid a JLA salary here, and we all have to pull our weight. I do. I do also like the. Um, I, I like the idea that superheroes can become. I don't want to say like genre savvy, but when you've been a superhero long enough, you've probably say faced an alien invasion, or you've gone on a time travel adventure, or you've gone to an alternate reality. But maybe not everybody has done all of those. So I like the idea that Zariel could just say. I need someone with experience of the non-material realms, <laughs> and maybe like a few people would just go like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, yeah, I've totally did that. Like last week, had a really cool adventure." <laughs> yeah, yep. Sentinel's impatient though. He's like, "Can we just get on with this?" <laughs> Superman basically says, "Hey, your call. Let's do it." Yeah, uh, just uh, Superman happily defers to Sentinel, and um, as Sentinel starts kind of like uh, divvying up the group into teams, basically. Um, him and Zauriel are apparently the only ones who can reach the Spectre so everyone else should go and uh, try and get the Thunderbolt back in his pen <laughs> you know, literally his pen like a pencil <laughs> pen uh, like you do yeah, and then Plastic Man starts messing with Wildcat so he turns himself into a big grinning Cheshire cat with his face on the cat's tail as he rubs up against Wildcat and says, please tell me those are inflatable muscles. Oh no, I'm every Tomcat's dream, but you're just boasting now. To which Wildcat says, shut your yap, O'Brien. I remember Father Gil Hooley chasing you down with a Bible in one hand, one hand and a shillelagh in the other. You were full of it then and you're full of it now, so let's try to be professional. So again... They know each other of old, there's, basically. Yeah, there's history there, but this sort of implies to me that Wildcat knew him when he was a kid. Oh, that's possible. That is possible, yeah. Although, um, although he does say earlier... What does he say earlier? I'm trying to remember. I'm just casting my mind back. He does say he knew what the Thunderbolt could do. So, I don't know. I'm genuinely curious now whether, whether Plastic Man, being an old like 1930s originating character whether he was active at that time yeah it's we need to do some plastic man research <laughs> clearly <laughs> uh we'll, we'll get right on that um uh but yeah but uh superman uh, is just asking our man it's like hey look i mean are you 
you know, are you can't you give us a bit more to work with? I mean, um, how can we avert this threat? Like, you know, is there really a threat? To which uh, Auermang's like, hey, look, you know, I'm sorry, uh, we're in the middle of all this chronal interference, so I can't see, I can't see clearly, but um, yeah, there's going to be a big conflict. Um, Captain Marvel's arrival is the next sign, and um, yeah, one of you's uh, going to die today, so uh, cool. Just you casually know. drop that in there. <laughs> yeah, just deal with that. Uh, Superman's expression is quite rightly a expression of, sorry, what? Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Um, but again, we're, mo- we're, we're moving scenes again, and we're back in Chicago with Triumph. And a big blue lightning man. Yeah, who's sort of standing over over Triumph, dwarfing him, saying, look, you get three wishes, I can do whatever you want me to, and I've demonstrated my power. So, come on, come on, let's get on with this, because I also need to go destroy Yiz, who is Yiz. another one like me. <laughs> uh yeah, and uh, he also mentions that he has, um, he's also imprisoned a mighty spirit who might have tried to interfere. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe it's the Spectre. No, that um, can't be right. But Triumph uh, apparently has dealings, has experience with kind of literal deals with the devil because he's like, uh, oh, sure, right. Like, I give you, you know, I give you what you want, you give me what I want, and all I have to do is give up my soul. Is that, is that, is that it? Uh, to which um, looks, 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 looks says, "Your soul is too small for me. I only need your world to play in." Yeah, and Billy is basically muttering about how it's not fair. He could have been what Superman is. He was there at the beginning. He starts asking himself, "Why can't I do anything right?" And and looks is a bit. Look, come on, just get on with this. You've got three wishes. I can make you a hero. I can make you leader of your own Justice League. Get on with it, or just send me back and return to your gutter. Yeah, it's we're not like hard and fast on the rules of genie dumb yet, but it would seem that while looks kind of has like seemingly infinite power, uh, it kind of needs to be set free in a way. It's like a it's like a bargain. It's like if you, I'll grant your wish, but in return, you have to give me a thing to play with, namely the material universe, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> fair trade and then Billy just says "Uh, yeah alright I wish I was Triumph again with a better haircut (laughs) I don't think his hair is terrible right now if I'm honest no but I I vaguely recall his original Triumph look and I think he had like Guy Gardner bowl haircut I need to look up the original Triumph look I think anyway um, looks kind of gestures there's a a mighty bolt of lightning and um, Triumph is is reborn and basically says, oh my god, I can feel Earth's magnetic poles again. I can see radio signals in the air, decode satellite transmissions. I'm Triumph. And uh, he stands up in his whole new costume. And his new haircut. Yeah, I've just looked him up. His old costume is basically this same costume, but the unitard is blue, the shoulder bit is gold and he doesn't have a cape. And he pretty much, yeah, has Guy Gardner hair. I will look that up as soon as we are done recording. Um, PJ, of all the hairstyles you've seen Triumph uh, kind of wielding, um, how do, how does this one rank? It's stupid. <laughs> he's got Could you like, describe it? He's got like a crew cut, but then he's got one really long bit that comes out the middle and sticks up at the front. 
I I have to assume that that's that's the bit where it, it is ridiculous genie magic, where it's like, yeah, this is you ask for a cool haircut. This is the kind of haircut that only only magic could 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 give you. Yeah, I believe. I'm wondering if if looks actually knows what cool means, <laughs> or maybe this is what maybe triumph just isn't that fashionable maybe this is what he thinks is cool i mean the costume's not bad and it is an improvement to be fair but yeah the the haircut is stupid and i i guess like you know we can assume that triumph is essentially superman-esque but that his powers are magnetic yeah in origin, I think I, 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 God, I maybe we should have done our research. Uh, I, I really don't know what the original gimmick was with Triumph. No, I, say, I think I've only ever read one other thing he was in, and he didn't do much in that. So, I think if if you ask scholars, Triumph scholars, they'll say this is the best Triumph story ever that we're reading it now. Probably is. Again, I think Morrison's just kind of bizarre ability to to pluck really weird and obscure things out of out of dc continuity and make them and then probably do the most definitive version of them um yeah i think you know you don't have to know anything about triumph to enjoy this story i think it works really well on its own and basically this is you know these four issues are the most and only triumph content i've ever i've ever read i think it's it's something morrison has in common with wade and busick isn't it they're all Mm. versed in their continuity and can pull these little things out and do amazing things with them um, but yeah, so so PJ, that is the last of Triumph we see for this issue, but uh, there's still a little more to come. Yeah, we, we cut back to Central City, where the Assembled League and Society are uh, on at Ground Zero at the... You know, they just sort of stood there, cordoned off around police lines, and Kyle's looking at a statue of, of Barry, saying, hey, that's, that's what he's uncle, right? And Jay says, yeah, that's, that's Barry Allen. I still remember when he asked me if it was okay to use the Flash name. And then we also get... And I I love this exchange. It's just perfect. Mm, Huntress so and good. Wildcat talking. Huntress just saying, you taught him to box. And Wildcat going, yeah, I'm still one of the few people who can see that right hook coming. Yes, because um, uh, it, it won't have escaped most readers uh, the idea that... Um, well, doesn't Wildcat cast a very similar silhouette to a certain bat-themed hero? He's He's... It's it's Batman, but without the cape and with some whiskers. Yeah, and and yeah, and you know, Batman travelled the world, uh, learning every every discipline from every master. And boxing is is a, is a is a is a martial art. And uh, yeah, who else would you go to other than Ted Grant? <laughs> yeah, it's great. And he also says, "Hey, some of the old JLA JSA team ups, they were pretty wild." And Huntress is basically there going. I'm overwhelmed. One, you taught Batman to box. Two, you've been doing this for years. Can you just teach me to stay sane around superheroes? And and again, uh, a completely unnecessary character interaction, which I think most other people just wouldn't have included in the story. Yeah. I'm so glad that Morrison did. Yeah. Because the, the fact that Huntress instantly gravitates to the only other quote-unquote normal person, it just... It's a lovely bit of character development. Yeah, and I think building a relationship between Huntress and Wildcat as well. That this it's not been there before. I think this is the first time these characters have met, but it is just it's done so well, and Morrison just very quickly sets it up that Huntress it just goes to this experienced person and says, "How do you deal with it?" And it works. 
Yeah, I, I just I, I love that kind of thing. Like when when as a creator you trust the characters so well to just just know instinctively which ones would hit it off with each other. Yeah. Like yeah, again, it just makes sense. Like you've got you know, Mor- Morrison, you know, same with Kyle. Like Kyle and Huntress get a deceptively large amount of character development over the course of the series. Yeah. Um Yeah, in many ways they're they're the kind of every every men, every people kind yes. of going through this. Yeah. And the, we then get another lovely moment where there, you know, Wally has gone into the bank to get the Thunderbolt pen, apparently. And Jay and Kyle are just signing autographs. <laughs> and Jay's signing one for a kid. And he says, look, signing autographs is what got me into this in the first place. And Kyle's signing an autograph for a policeman. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's a really, it's a really, um, again, the rarity of the JLA having advance warning of yeah. an upcoming challenge. And, and so you get this incredibly surreal scene where it's like, we know where this, this, this menace is going to come from. We're here ahead of time. We're just going to casually go in and just get the item we need. Uh, and um, it's just a fetch a quest cra- at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a crowd because, of course, there's a crowd. So... You know, everyone's like, "Oh, look, superheroes are here. Let's uh, let's get autographs." And it's all just very congenial and and chill. It's, it's a re- I love this page. It's such a good page. It sort of gives you a good insight into how the DC universe works as well, doesn't it? It's mm. it's so good. Yeah, with this kind of like inherent celebrity of superhero, which yeah. you get a little more than in the Marvel universe. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. But then an evil laugh comes off page, and Huntress just says, Mary, Mother of God, the bank. Oh, no way. And as we turn the page... Uh, <laughs> off this panel. The, the world goes insane, um, because the, the bank has come alive, and has a face. A big old mouth. And arms. It looks like a, a, a villain from a kind of um, classic platformer. And... Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, 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 it's cackling and laughing and goes, look, the world has a new master now. And Wally comes flying out of the mouth like a cannonball uh, with, with kind of like yellow lightning crackling behind him. Uh, and uh, Kyle catches him as uh, as Wally goes, uh, DEFCON 4, guys, DEFCON 4. It's that that panel of the bank basically spitting Wally out. It it. It feels to me like staged very much like something from a like like a, a Tex Avery cartoon or something like that. Mm, it like puts Felix me in, the cat or something. Yeah, exactly that sort of thing. It's it's hilarious. It's such a funny image, and yeah, obviously it's bad. The Flash is being spat out by an evil living building, but it's, there's just something really funny about it, and I love that that Morrison and Porter are having fun with this while they're telling this big story. Oh, and it's like uh, it's. Uh... It's just such a complete tonal shift as well from like the complete calm of like the previous page. It's 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 ridiculous and wonderful, like just how over the top this panel is. Yeah. Um it just comes out of nowhere. And 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 everybody just looks utterly stunned, as I think the reader would be, to just <laughs> yeah. go like, what the absolute hell is going on yeah. here? Yeah. And then we get and one last tiny bit of the page that is a lovely detail, the word next written in white at the bottom of the page and either side of the next are Captain Marvel and Superman flying towards each other, arms outstretched, as if they're about to have a fight. The end. Or rather, to be continued. 
I think that is one of the most effective next issue hooks <laughs> that I've ever because they they don't even use words they just use the two images like the the shadow with the S the shadow with the lightning bolt flying towards each other to let you know oh yeah that fight's coming next issue kind of tells you everything you would possibly need to know yeah um PJ what do you think of this issue it's great I love it it's it's really cool it's <laughs> let's be honest it's mostly set up there's there's everything that happens is is there to just set up the following three issues but as far as setup goes it's damn good setup it's kind of saying something and i mean this in the best possible way that you could have an entire issue where nothing really happens and yet it's all wonderful yeah i mean stuff does happen but it's really just like people talking um and god there's so many scenes like you're bouncing about all over the place yeah and yeah. you keep you keep thinking that like as a story it's going to like come off the rails and just stop making sense but it actually works yeah it really does and because the, there aren't that many stories of this length in in Morrison's run on JLA no and and having that room to breathe and set everything up properly but also having a character like our man who can just cut out some of the <laughs> <laughs> some of the dialogue here and there as well it it all works so well and and it's it just makes you excited to read what's coming next and i've got to say like the 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 sense of menace that's established like i think the scene with um triumph and those kind of like um those low lives that's that's a great scene like yep. it's really like ominous and, and menacing and and again just like kind of like the, the whole thing with captain marvel the idea that it's magic you know you don't need to think about it the idea of like these wishes and these incredibly powerful beings yeah uh yeah it just you instantly know you instinctively know i think on some level like the power threat we're dealing with um it's great. I really, I really enjoy it. But it's also Morrison using the issue to say something about a few different things. One about the relationship between the Justice League and the Justice Society, and mm. how what the JSA were in the war informs what the JLA is now, and and the legacy between them. Which I don't know how much of that had been done post crisis, because obviously pre crisis they were on different Earths. So. Mm. I think I think the way Morrison plays the relationship between the two teams is is just beautifully judged in this issue and having the reverence Superman shows to Sentinel who obviously pre-crisis Superman was on the JSA with Sentinel. <laughs> oh god PJ but, like yeah. But yeah so I I love that. But also what Morrison says with about Mr. Muxius Pitaluk, who isn't even going to appear in this story <laughs> but how he informs the story with the line Superman says about he's mischievous. What could a creature with his powers do if they were malevolent? And we're now seeing that play out. Yeah, and it's kind of again, it just shows how weird Superman's life is. Um, also, how kind of patient he is. You know, like he's never one who just goes, "Oh bloody hell!" It's Mix Skill Plick and his kind again. It's like Miss. He's a okay, Mister Mix. He's a massive pain in the ass, but Superman's like, look, he's an annoyance, and I deal with him. You yeah, know, that's it. That's that's the sole limit of the problem here. Yeah. Um, 
and again, like I think as we're gonna, as we're going to see, like in the coming issues, like this is Morrison just like kind of like strip mining DC continuity. Like there are so many deep pools and like weird little references coming up in this story. Um, I'm amazed that you know it could even fit it all in their skull. To be honest, yeah, yep. There's another thing this issue does very well, I think, uh, which is Batman. Now, Batman mm. isn't in this issue. Uh, Batman is in this story later on, but even though, and it's something that some some of the really good stories do very well, is you'll feel Batman's presence in a story before Batman appears in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's done very well here with the moment between Flash and Huntress, where Batman's figured this out already, hasn't he? Yes, he has. <laughs> and then Wildcat talking about teaching Batman to box. It, it just... I, I love stories where... Batman's presence is felt like that. I think mm. it's a story that over the years, yeah, issues, there are issues with it, definitely. But it's something that I think Identity Crisis did very well in that Batman didn't appear until like the fourth issue of it or something, but you could feel his presence throughout the preceding issues and, and that he was part of the story. And it's just a really effective way of, of using the character. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. And, um, you know, I'm thinking ahead to when Batman does make an appearance and I'm already looking forward to it. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's a very, again, I, it's the Wolverine problem, isn't it? It's like you can overdo it with Batman because he's so damn cool. I like it when he's used a little more sparingly. Yeah, exactly. And never Morrison never lets you forget that Batman's around, but you don't need to see him all the time. No, that's true. That's true. And again, like, Batman technically, still technically kind of, you know, he's an active member, but he's more of a con- consulting position, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At this point, PJ, is he still an urban legend? Yes. Or is, or does that at any point get kind of, like, revealed or dropped during the course of this series? It's the uh, the... In JLA, he's an urban legend up until... I I can't remember where it lies in terms of what was going on in JLA concurrently, but in a Batman story called War Games, that's when Batman gets revealed to the world. Basically, to save a life, he has to show himself on camera, so he just does it. Mm. Uh, And that's when the world realises Batman exists. But I think that was a few years... early 2000s somewhere possibly during mark wade's run or just after mark wade's run on jla Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah again i'm just trying to think like here we have the jla and the jsa kind of like outside a bank with like tongues in daylight with like tongues of people queuing for autographs so that's not really the situation in which you would get batman no and of course when they did the press tour off the watchtower during the Prometheus storyline, Batman was like chilling in the monitor womb. Yeah. So yeah, I like yeah, I like the idea that that's just kind of ticking along in the background. Um, but I would say, I mean, as we've referenced, I think many times over the course of this ish- this episode, um, the sliding, changing, retconned continuity and timeline is very hard to keep track of. Yes. Particularly when you consider that. At this point in continuity, the JLA had only really been active for like 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, Wildcat kind of references 
team-ups between the two the two groups. So I I have to assume that's within that 10-year period. Yeah, early days of the JLA, but it's going to be a, a slightly different JSA, presumably. Um, or, well, uh, more of them, for one thing, because there were presumably more of them around at the beginning of the JLA, you know, and then yeah. they all slowly retire or pass away, and yeah, they can't team up anymore. Yeah, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because I guess one thing I like about this story is that despite the fact that the continuity is always all over the place and you don't really know what's in canon or not in canon following a, a crisis, um, all you really need to know to enjoy this story is that the JSA were an old superhero team. Yeah. You know, they're respected. You don't have to know them all by name because this story does a grand job of introducing you to all of them and humanising all of them. Like, I remember back in the day reading uh, a criticism of this series saying that, like, it was all action, no no, no um, character development or anything. But it's like this story is nothing but character moments, you know, and getting to know people. I think that criticism came from someone who just looked at the pictures and didn't read the speech bubbles. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe they saw early art samples, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think about, like... I guess Morrison's changing writing style as the story progresses. Because this feels like a very different Morrison to the Morrison of, say, New World Order. Because I know there's a lot going on here, but it also feels like Morrison's kind of taking taking their time a bit. Well, I think it's because Morrison's got more issues to tell the story in, in this one. Although the same length as New World Order, isn't it? But... I, I don't necessarily know if Morrison's style changes so much as the fact that every story Morrison tells is is just a completely different story to the last one in their JLA mm. run. There's no... No villains really repeat, other than a couple of notable examples for the climax. But, you know, it goes the White Martians, then Tomorrow Woman, Angels, The Key, Rock of Ages, and everything is different to the story that was before it. I would say maybe this story has some similarity to the Angels story, just in terms of the level of destruction that's on offer and the the sort of feeling of of dread you get from, mm. oh, this is a big, powerful entity. How are they going to deal with that? I think atmospherically this is very similar to that, but the threat itself is quite different. And Yeah, I don't know if there's necessarily a change in Morrison's style as so much they're just telling lots of, very different stories using these same characters. One thing I do I do feel is that like right out the gate when you're opening the series, which is a big deal, you know, because you're you're rebooting these big characters. well, no, not reboot rebooting, but you know what I mean. It's like it's a big return to form, the Magnificent Seven. I feel like I really like New World Order, but I also feel like it's it's uh it's a creative team, it's a series, it's a publisher that's got something to prove. You know, because they're like hey, look, we've got the big guns. Like, New World Order is, like, very showy, and it's good. But also, I feel this is a very relaxed story, and it's actually kind of nice to see a Morrison who uh, doesn't have anything to prove at this point because people are already on board. And I think, you know, you get Morrison kind of, like, chilling, and it's like, this is a this is just a good relaxed story despite the fact that 101 things are happening and it's just really nice that the series gets to that point really where you know you don't have to win anyone over because they're already with you yeah yeah 
And also, like, again, you know, you're, you're also shaking off a bit of a 90s funk, you know. And, like, what, this came out in, like, April 99. Yeah. In many ways, this is a, this is a cute, goofy story, you know. And that's <laughs> yeah. not the kind of thing you'd think would really land with an audience, you know, back when you launched the series. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. This is an audience that you used to the mid-90s excesses and dark, gritty characters. And yeah, but obviously Morrison sort of leaned into something more classic with his, with sorry, their take on, on, on the league. And I, as you say, I think this is a lot of fun. I compared that last panel to a, a, a an old cartoon and i think that very much stands there's a lot of that throughout this story actually that really feels like old school stuff um but with a modern slant well yeah because i mean what you start the series and you've got like um uh very edgy uh overpowered heroics which again i love don't get me wrong mm. but now it's like as you say we have like a living kind of cartoon like kind of taking over a city and Plastic Man, like, goofing around with Wildcat. And it's like, I'm so glad that, you know, it's like Morrison could kind of, like, trick people into thinking they were reading, like, a big, bombastic 90s nineties kind of action comic, when in reality they were doing, like, a backdoor, Silver Age, wonderful nonsense kind of book. Um, and, and yeah, I love it. I'm, I, I'm just so glad that it worked, that they were able to do it. Yeah. No, same, definitely. Um, but but yeah, like I guess we're we're totally we're totally into it now. Um, and and yeah, and I guess after like a story of of basically as you said, PJ, a lot of setup, fun as it is, um, there's going to be a lot of action going forward, a lot of weird stuff, a lot of weird stuff, and a lot of very cool stuff, and sort of on lots of different, lots of different battlefields, let's say. Yes. Yeah. And and again, I yeah, and just I'm just struck by it. Again, I have no idea what's going on in the current continuity. I have no idea if a JSA is even a thing right now. But it, it's wild to me to think that once again you can trace quite a big factor part of DC continuity back to Morrison. Because yeah, the JSA were a big part of like the nineties, the early two thousands, the mid two thousands, and it and it kind of all started here, which is yeah. wild. Yeah, it definitely did. Definitely. And oh, oh, we're gonna have so much fun with the next three issues. Have we have we exhausted everything there is to say about this particular issue, PJ? Uh yes. Yes. I I think so. Although I can't wait to see I can't well, I know what's coming, but I can't wait to revisit it. Yeah, same. Um PJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about, seeing as we have like a captive audience? Uh, I don't think of them as captive audience, John. I think of them as my friends. Who we keep kind of... Chained in a basement, yeah. But... Chained in a basement, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I want to shout about this week, though. Could I do a mild a mild shout-out? Absolutely, you can. Um, do you know that my, my, my comic series, After I Think, is 10 years old, PJ? What? I had no I idea. It's, it's, it's true, and... Uh, um, to kind of celebrate, um, I'm doing like a big super collected edition split over two hardback books, the Book of Life and the Book of Death. Uh, it's a logistical nightmare that I've been sweating over for like a year or so, but it's finally nearing completion. And um, 
and yeah, I, I'd just like to say to anyone listening, if you'd like to uh, kind of, I don't know, keep up to date, find out more about my plans for it, um, I have a newsletter. And if I ask PJ very nicely on air, maybe he'll let me uh, include a link to it in the description to this episode. Oh, I think I could allow that. Thank you. I said it in public so you'd feel guilted into it. Yeah, well done. Good job. Thank you. Sneaky, thank you. Yeah. underhanded. I like it. Uh, going to come back so, yeah, to you so, one of these days. <laughs> well, yeah, PJ, you know, um, you know, you could be plugging things as well. I choose not to this time. You choose not to. You're too dignified. Um, but no, if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to kind of just sign up to a newsletter to keep uh, keep abreast of uh, Book of Life, Book of Death uh, developments, there will be a link in the description. Are you sure you don't want to shout about anything, PJ? I feel I feel guilty now. God, fine. Listen to my Star Trek podcast. Whatever. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Should, should we put a link in the description to it? Uh, yeah, why not? Why not? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get that sorted. <laughs> um, well, I guess on that note, PJ, if we really have done all the kind of um, shameless shilling we can possibly pack in, uh, I, I should uh, thank Gav Mitchell for drawing our amazing cover artwork. And I'll thank Elliot Red for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune, Justice. And if we really have exhausted this magical avenue of pleasure, he said, pausing for effect. Cool. I haven't heard anything from PJ, so I have to assume that's true. Yep. PJ, uh, <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure. Could you please do your honours and see us home in your own unique fashion? Yep. Here we go. You'd <laughs> 